Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Wild Connection, the podcast. It's post-holiday and before New Year's, and this episode starts the launch of a special Women in Science series. I want to acknowledge the sponsor of this series, the American Geophysical Union. I was the recipient of their Sharing Science grant, and I couldn't be more thrilled to use it to support Wild Connection, the podcast. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. All right, this series is starting off with a bang, not the big bang, although that's related. The James Webb Infrared Telescope successfully launched this week. You might be wondering, why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because this powerful, well, the most powerful telescope ever built will let astronomers and astrophysicists like my guest, Dr. Katie Mack, look deep into the history of galaxies far, far away. Because of light years and all that, what we see is the past when we look in the present. This telescope will give scientists and us the chance to see far back into time and cosmic history. It's expected to peer so far back that it will catch a glimpse of galaxies that were formed over 13 billion years ago. It's going to take a while to start receiving images, but when I recorded this podcast with Dr. Katie Mack, we were just simply hoping the launch would be a success. Dr. Katie Mack is an astrophysicist at North Carolina State University, and she's also the author of The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. I got to talk to her about black holes, the universe, the telescope, and her book. So let's get started. Today we have Dr. Katie Mack. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited that I get to talk to you because I have never talked to an astrophysicist. Um, <laughs> and and you, you do more than astrophysics, uh, right? You also combine it with particle physics. Yeah, so the area I work in um, is sometimes called astroparticle physics or particle cosmology. So I am interested in the sort of intersection between fundamental physics, the physics of the very, very small, and the cosmic you know, evolution, um, what the universe is made of, uh, that kind of thing. So um, one of the things I study is dark matter, which is some invisible stuff that uh, seems to be most of the matter in the universe, most of the stuff in the universe that has mass. And we don't know what it's made of, but we think it's probably some kind of new particle that we've just never detected in a particle detector before. It's useful to have sort of both the, the astrophysical knowledge to think about how dark matter acts in the universe, and then to uh, look at the particle side to figure out what it might be. Fascinating. Now, if dark, okay, I'm going to, you know, I don't have a background in this at all. I did like physics too with the uh, mm -hmm. circuits, right? That was my okay, favorite. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the rest went way, way beyond me. So 
if dark matter is invisible, how do you know that it's there? Well, one of the analogies I like to use is um, is the wind. So if you're walking down the street and you see a tree leaning over and you hear some leaves rustling and you see a, a street sign waving back and forth and a plastic bag moves across in front of you and you feel cold on one side, you can you can, uh, you know, infer that there is wind blowing. You can't see the wind. You don't expect the wind because the wind, you know, is made up of particles that you cannot see with the naked eye. Um, but you see its effects on everything around you in lots of different ways. And dark matter is very similar in the sense that we can't see it. We don't expect to be able to see it based on what we know about what it's made of, but we see how it changes the way that stars move around galaxies, how it changes the way light moves through the universe by actually changing the shape of space it's in. We see um, the way that it affected the growth of galaxies and clusters of galaxies in the early universe and, and how it affected things that we can see just all across the cosmos in different ways. Um, but just by sort of contributing its gravity to cosmic structure. And so although all the pieces of evidence are sort of indirect in the same way that the, the way you know about wind is sort of indirect, you also get a very clear picture that the same phenomenon, uh, the same stuff is causing all of these different effects. I love that analogy. That is fantastic. And it makes me think of all the things that we can't see and yet mm -hmm. we, we know exist yeah. because of other lines of evidence. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of jumped into like, what is dark matter? <laughs> uh, but I'd really love to uh, kind of step back for a second and just get a sense of you and your journey. I really, I like mm -hmm. your listeners to understand, you know, how, how did you come to study particle astrophysics? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure I'm saying yeah. it all wrong, but um, how did you uh -huh. kind of arrive at this place where that was what you started to explore? Um, so, well, uh, I have always been a sort of curious person. I think, I mean, I think we all are as children. We're always curious about how the world works and what's going on around us. And when I was a little kid, I was the kind who would sort of tinker with things, take things apart, you know, um, disassemble to see what was doing inside, like that kind of thing. Um, and I just was always trying to understand what everything was fundamentally, like how it all worked, like what are the rules that govern the universe? And, and at some point I started to read like science magazines for kids about, you know, the big bang and black holes and stuff. And then I stumbled on uh, Stephen Hawking's work, uh, the, you know, the briefest history of time, things like that. And, uh, and I was like, this is amazing. Like I loved that, that feeling of sort of mind bendingness of, of these big, you know, confusing concepts. And, um, and so I saw that what Stephen Hawking's job was called was cosmologist. A cosmologist is somebody who studies the cosmos. Um, and so I was like, well, I want to do that. I want to be a cosmologist. And so what I do now, you know, I, I described it as particle astrophysics earlier, but cosmology is, is sort of the, the umbrella term for, for the study of the cosmos as a whole and its evolution and so on. And so it's, uh, I just kind of kept going in that vein. Like I'm, I'm still fascinated by those big questions. You know, what, what is the universe made of? Where'd it come from? Where is it going? How does it all work? How does everything fit together? That's a huge question. I mean, talk yeah. about picking something to uh, try to understand the inner workings of. Uh, I, yeah. I, I went with, why is that squirrel always looking around when it's burying a nut? Mm, right. Um, yeah. That was my big question. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's it. That is a good question. Well, and it turns out that, uh, you know, if anyone's curious that they're, they're being eavesdropped on by other squirrels and who will steal their nuts and it takes a lot of effort to find it, and hide your nuts. It makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. it's hilarious yeah. when they think you're going to steal their nuts. Um, <laughs> apparently we are just big squirrels, um, to other right. squirrels. So, okay. So I love this because that's sort of, I mean, you know, in the vein of like Carl Sagan, was he a cosmologist too? No. So he was a planetary scientist. Um, okay. he talked a lot about cosmology in his public work, but his research was on, on the planets. Um, he did some work about Saturn things like that. Um, but you know, like anybody who, sort of gains prominence in, in a field, they end up talking publicly about a, a larger range of things than what they specifically work on. So I, I talk about planet stuff too, sometimes, even though I'm nowhere near planetary science, uh, just because, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of similar principles that you learn when you get into, uh, these areas of science. Okay. Right. And speaking of areas of science, you know, mm-hmm. um, it seems like, and I could be wrong, but it's making predictions in your field pretty challenging? Um, well, so my field, um, I guess it depends on what you mean by predictions. Um, well, like when we're doing science, right, we have hypotheses yeah. and we make predictions yeah. about what yeah. we expect to see if yeah, we're going yeah. to support our hypothesis. We have to somehow collect some data. So if you yeah. have something like, you know, I mean, you understand and you explain so well that you can infer where dark matter mm. is affecting other yeah. elements of the cosmos. Yeah. But like how, how, so that's what I mean is how difficult is it to make predictions about certain things that are really small and that, you know, we might not have as much an understanding of as we do say here, you know, on terra firma, the earth. Yeah. So, so a lot of what we do, um, especially in my field. So my, 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 sort of sub area is sometimes called phenomenology, where we look at, um, like we're thinking about phenomenon, you know, different phenomena that are caused by, uh, certain sort of theories of the universe. So let's say somebody comes up with an idea of what dark matter might be. They write down a theory. It's a very mathematical construct that explains, you know, the connections between this particle and other, um, for, you know, forces of nature and other particles. Um, that's, that's a theory written on paper, that explains, um, you know, the, the sort of very formal connections between all of these things that, that doesn't directly translate to here's what we're going to see in a telescope. Somebody else has to come in and say, okay, what does that theory mean for what the telescopes are going to see? How does that connect with what we know about astrophysics? Um, or, you know, if it's an experiment, how does this connect to what we'll see in a particle detector? And so somebody has to be kind of the conduit between the formal theory and the observations or experiments. And so the way the place I work is kind of in that middle ground where I don't do experiments. I don't do observations. I never really touch data and I don't come up with new theories. I don't, I don't develop models, but I'm, I'm sort of in the middle saying, well, you know, if this is, if this is the, the way dark matter behaves, then uh, I can put, a bunch of equations into a computer. I can run some code. I can, um, you know, input things we know about galaxies and I can say, okay, this is what the James Webb space telescope might see. And if it sees this, then I can say that theory is ruled out. If it sees this other thing, I can say that theory is ruled out. If it sees this other thing, we just don't have any information, you know? So there's a, there's a kind of range of, of possibilities 
And it's um, it's not exactly predictions in the sense that like all the stuff already happened. <laughs> you know, like we're just we're just doing observations of things in the very, very distant cosmic past for the most part. And so we're we're sort of forecasting what observations will show us in the future. Sometimes you can make predictions for the results of experiments, but um, we're we're really you know trying to go out and discover things in the universe and then connect those with with what we are thinking about in terms of our theories. That wow. Okay. Well, so you so you're the bridge between between really two groups of people. And did you have a chance to come up with some things that maybe that new X-ray telescope that NASA just uh, deployed didn't they just launch an x-ray telescope uh yeah i think or um i don't know if it was nasa but there was there is a new x-ray telescope that's that's recently um been put together and there's a bunch of there are a bunch of um optical and infrared telescopes deploying soon so i mean i don't i don't have like a a set of things here's what what's what those things those experiments are going to see i do i i have written some papers talking about what future radio telescopes are going to see maybe or maybe not and how that can relate to different theories about uh things like dark matter or cosmic strings or primordial black holes or all these weird things that may or may not have existed in the early universe and uh and then there are other things to do with very early universe uh phenomena and how um, how we might learn about those from other kinds of observations of the sky. So, you know, there, there's a, a sort of range of things that I've, I've worked on, but I haven't worked on X-ray astronomy specifically, no. Okay, well, this brings up a, a ton of questions. Well, and I will say okay. that I, I also now just learned that there are different types of telescopes, right? My level of mm. knowledge is the telescope that I just looked at uh, through uh, a couple of nights ago, looking at Venus and mm. Jupiter, um, oh, wow. Cool. I think it was Venus and Jupiter. It was just a backyard telescope, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so to me, all telescopes are fundamentally, but I know this is probably criminal to say to uh, astrophysicists, they're all just backyard telescopes. They're just bigger and see closer. I mean, the, you know, the principles are, are very similar. Um, I mean, I have, uh, you know, because we're, we're on zoom right now, you can see that I have a telescope in the room behind me here. That's one of these backyard telescopes, um, telescopes that you use with the naked eye use optical light. So they're, they're, um, you know, optimized to be able to reflect uh, visible light. And then you see it, you know, you look through the, the, um, the eyepiece, or maybe you have a CCD, uh, camera in there somewhere. You can do astrophotography. Um, there are, other uh, telescopes where the optics are set up for different wavelengths of light. So, um, for example, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is supposed to be launching in like less than two weeks, and we're all very nervous about that. And by the time this podcast comes out, apparently people will know if it blew up on the launch pad or not. I don't want to think about that right now. Anyway, um, <laughs> the James Webb Space Telescope is optimized for infrared light. And so it's uh, it can see light that's a longer wavelength than what we can see with our eyes. And the reason for that is because it helps it to see very, very, very distant objects, um, because as essentially as the universe is expanding, it kind of stretches out the light from very distant galaxies. And so it shifts the light from visible to infrared light. And so if you have a telescope that can see infrared light, 
then you can see more distant objects because those will be less visible in, in, in visible light uh, now. Um, and then there are telescopes that are where the, the optics are set up to detect uh, X-ray light. Um, there are radio telescopes that are, you know, those giant dishes uh, like in the, like in the movie contact. Um, yes. Okay. Those, yeah. Those are radio telescopes. Uh, there are uh, the whole range of different kinds of telescopes for different kinds of light. And we use different kinds of telescopes to observe different sorts of cosmic phenomena. Cause you know, uh, like if you want to observe things falling into black holes, turns out x-ray telescopes are great for that. Um, if you want to <laughs> observe, if you want to observe giant jets of radiation sort of shooting out of the centers of galaxies because of the motions of, of things falling around, falling toward supermassive black holes, radio telescopes can show you that kind of thing. They can also show you uh, things having to do with atmospheric effects on planets like Jupiter. Um, and then uh, infrared can be good for, you know, uh, very distant galaxies. It could be, can be good for very cool stars, um, certain kinds of things looking for planets out, um, around other stars. There's a whole set of different kinds of observations you can do at different wavelengths. I'm starting to understand why you fell in love with this. Um, <laughs> it's really amazing stuff. Yeah. And speaking of a relationship uh, and black holes and things falling into black holes, I, I did see that uh, that are, are, are merging together, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Now, so, so they found two really large black holes. Like, I don't know that there were mm. small black holes, uh, but mm. really big ones. And they're the closest, uh, according to others, you know, you can correct me, uh, to Earth that they've ever seen. And they keep calling it a monster. Like, it's, it's this monster black hole that's going to get formed uh, in mm. about 250 million years. So it's kind of quite mm. a, a long romance of these two black holes and of course uh they're three thousand light years apart now i don't know how far that is but it seems like a long distance relationship um so sorry <laughs> there was about the, this <laughs> yeah so the the internet paused for a second there um but i, I think i caught what you're saying um so yeah i Every once in a while, I I will see little news reports uh, flashing by about things that that get covered, things that that the astronomers themselves are focusing on. So I think I saw something recently about a nearby um, supermassive black hole pair, but I, I could be misremembering because I didn't actually read it because it was uh, not uh, not something in my area. Um, but uh, yeah, we we do know that a lot of that well, pretty much all all large galaxies we know of seem to have a supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy. That includes our galaxy. The Milky Way has a supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way. It's about four million times as massive as the Sun. Um, and uh, there are other you know other large galaxies also have these central supermassive black holes. And we know that sometimes when galaxies merge those the black holes in the centers will will come together and so there have been a few systems where there's evidence for a pair of supermassive black holes in the center of the galaxy and they're kind of spiraling in um and it takes you know it can take a very very long time for that process to occur because these distances are very long and the orbits can be reasonably stable for a while and then it, it takes a while for the orbits to kind of decay but uh yeah we're we're currently working on a few different experiments. Uh, you call, we call them experiments or even observatories, depending on how you think of it, uh, that should be able to detect the merging of supermassive black holes through 
the effect on space itself. So right now we have the ability to detect the merging of sort of black holes somewhere, you know, tens of times as massive as the sun um, in other galaxies. So the first time that was observed um, was a few years ago when two, two black holes about 30 times as massive as the sun spiraled together and merged in, a, in another galaxy billion light years away. And we were able to we, we knew that happened because we could we could pick up the vibration of space itself as uh, as those black holes merged, because black holes are essentially a, a phenomenon of space, like they're they're a, um, a sort of distortion in space. You can think of them that way. And so when they merge, they they disturb the space around them and, and what we call gravitational waves uh, kind of flow out from that process. And, and um and we can pick up those gravitational waves. And so we have a couple of experiments on Earth, uh, observatories that can observe those gravitational waves from uh, from black holes merging, you know, in other galaxies. And there are a couple of uh, things being put together now to observe really supermassive black holes doing the same thing. Um, so there's a, a space-based version of one of these gravitational wave detectors that's being um, sort of constructed or, or sort of designed now. And there are also ways to try and pick up those gravitational waves a little bit more indirectly by observing their effects on, um, on, uh, neutron stars, on pulsars, which are kind of a kind of neutron star that emits a, a steady pulse in the way that basically the way that that radiation is disturbed as gravitational waves go through can tell us something about gravitational waves traveling through space. So there's, uh, there are a couple of different ways that we're looking for uh, evidence of those, those kinds of giant mergers. And it's, it's a really exciting new field right now. Yeah. And I remember where I was, so I'm at university of Arizona and someone there, you know, took the first picture. Was it, was it a first picture of a black hole or, uh, I think so. Oh, there was a, there was, yeah, the event horizon telescope, the event horizon telescope was a project. It was a huge collaboration. So a lot of people were involved yeah. in this project, but the way they, they did it is they, kind of linked together data from telescopes all around the world to, to virtually form one giant telescope so they could see um, detail of a black hole at the center of a nearby galaxy. And, uh, and they were able to show, basically they were able to show where the light was disappearing uh, when it got close to the black hole. Um, so black holes are, are known as, as, objects where light can't escape from them because they, they, they distort gravity so much where they are. And, uh, and so the, the event horizon is this, this sort of uh, boundary around a black hole where if you cross the event horizon, if you get too close, then you, then you can't ever come out. And that applies to light as well as it applies to, you know, objects. And so, yeah, this, this telescope was able to produce an image that showed where the light was, was disappearing into the hole and not coming out. So it was really an amazing project. Yeah, it, I remember there was a lot of excitement about it. And, you know, it's fascinating to me. What, something you said was that every major galaxy has a black hole at its core. A, right? a supermassive. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of black holes in every galaxy, like oh, just okay. but black has, holes that are the result of the class of stars. So we know that like really massive stars, when they die, will form black holes at the end of their lives. And so we know of, you know, many of those in our own, our own galaxy, just, you know, five, 10, 20 times as massive as the sun, something like that. But um, there's the supermassive black holes, which can be millions or billions of times as massive as the sun. Those reside in the centers of galaxies. Yeah. I find that fascinating because that's awfully consistent. Yeah. 
right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's there's a little bit of a mystery around exactly how those black holes form. Um, but we know that they correlate with the mass of the galaxy themselves. So it seems like black holes and galaxies kind of grow up together. So a really massive galaxy will have a bigger black hole in the center. And the, the big mystery is how they get so big so fast, because when we look at very, very distant galaxies where, you know, when you look at something very distant, you're looking back in time because the light took some time to get to you. We can see galaxies that are so far away that they existed within the first billion years of the universe. And even then they can have really massive black holes in the centers. And it's, it's not actually that easy to make a black hole that big that quickly. And we don't, we don't entirely know how that process works. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot still to learn about, about supermassive black holes and galaxy centers. Yeah, no, that's a lot of unanswered questions for sure. I, you know, I have so many questions, you know, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, and we are going to get to your book, the end of everything astrophysically speaking, um, mm-hmm. because that came out it, just a little bit earlier this year, but um, uh, in 2020, 2020, oh, I'm sorry. 2020. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. okay. But first I guess I'm mm-hmm. wondering, do you were talking about sizes of galaxies and, and sizes of black holes and, you know, and that there's this relationship what does that have to do so our universe is expanding right this is i've I've always heard the universe is expanding 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 and eventually it's gonna like contract on itself no probably not probably okay so where does this myth come from that you know we're expanding and then we're just gonna suck in and just vanish this is this is part of why i wanted to write the book about the end of the universe because that's an idea that it was thought to be you know, in the 1960s or something, that was thought to be the most likely end for our universe. Um, but it hasn't been uh, since, well, we're, we're, we found out in the late 90s that it was very, very unlikely that the universe would ever stop expanding. Um, but the uh, that information hasn't quite sort of filtered through to the general public yet. And so in my book, I go through five different possibilities for the end of the universe and talk about what they all would look like, what the evidence for or against them is, you know, um, how we study this, how we figure out what what the fate of the universe might be. And the reason that people thought the universe might collapse is so we, we can we can see that the universe is expanding and that sort of just naturally leads to the question, will the universe continue expanding forever or will the expansion at some point stop and reverse? And it's kind of the equivalent of asking a question like if you throw a ball up into the air you know, will the ball continue into the sky forever or will it stop and, and fall down again? And, and, and you know that like under normal circumstances, you're just not strong enough to give it enough of a push for it to escape the earth, right? <laughs> like you'd have right. to throw a ball at, you know, 11.2 kilometers a second for it to reach escape velocity, at which point it would leave the earth and keep going forever. It would always be slowing down a little bit, but it would never fall back to the earth. But if you just, if you give it too little a push or if the ball is, you know, the, if the, gravity between the ball and the earth is too strong, it'll, it'll fall back down. Right. And so the question when we were looking at the expansion of the universe was, you know, was the big bang, which set off the expansion of the universe, was that powerful enough that the expansion will continue forever? Or is the gravity of all of the galaxies in the universe, all of the stuff in the universe, is that enough to put enough of a breaks, you know, on the, on this expansion to slow this down enough that it'll stop and come back. And, you know, the idea was, well, you know, clearly the expansion must be slowing in the same way that if you throw a ball up into the air, it'll it'll be slowing down because it's being pulled on by the earth and there's no extra force pushing it up. And so it'll always be slowing down, even if it does escape. So there was a um, an attempt to measure the, the 
deceleration of the universe, how, how quickly the universe was slowing down. And the weird and surprising thing was when that was actually measured, the, this deceleration parameter, this, this number telling us how quickly the expansion was slowing down was a negative number. The universe is actually speeding up. The expansion is speeding up and it's, it's exactly as weird as if you throw a ball up into the air and it slows down for a little while and then just shoots off into space. Like there's, there's gotta be something else happening that provides that extra push. Right. And so when we discovered that the universe was accelerating it in its expansion, that told us there has to be some new element of, uh, in you know, some new component of the universe or some new phenomenon or some new property of space that, that leads to that expansion. And so whatever that is, we call it dark energy. Um, it's not related to dark matter as far as we know, but it's some invisible something that's making the universe expand faster. And it may, it may be that it's just a property of space, that there's just some aspect of space that it has this sort of stretchiness in it. And so once the universe got big enough that all of the galaxies were far enough apart that their, their pull was not so strong, then the stretchiness of space kind of took over and, and started, you know, dominating the evolution of the universe, or it could be some, you know, new component of the universe, some new energy field or something that, that is driving the, uh, the accelerated expansion. We don't know which of those is true, but because we don't know what that is, because we don't know what the dark energy is, it leads to some interesting possibilities for the end of the universe, because, you know, you could have, you could have that the, you know, that maybe it is just a property of space and then the universe is just going to keep expanding forever. It's just going to get colder and darker and emptier and everything's going to get more isolated. And, you know, eventually it'll just kind of fade away and decay. And that's what we call the heat death of the universe, where everything just kind of decays into the waste heat of creation, just like sort of, you know, evaporates away into, into disordered energy. This is what we call heat in, in physics. So that's one possibility. If it's something that can change over time, it's, if it's an energy field that's driving this accelerated expansion, then that can lead to two different kinds of endings. One where the, the expansion speeds up and speeds up and gets more powerful within objects. And instead of just moving galaxies away from each other, it can start actually pulling galaxies apart. And that, that would be something that would lead to what we call a big rip, where it would sort of tear the universe apart in the distant future. Um, and then another possibility is if it's, if it's some kind of energy field, maybe it'll change. Maybe instead of always expanding the universe, maybe it'll turn around and start contracting it. And that could lead to this big crunch scenario that, that you talked about before. So those are sort of three of the five possibilities I talk about in the, in the, uh, in the book. And they have to do with this question of dark energy, this mysterious stuff that's making the universe expand faster. I, I love it. And we're going to let uh, readers uh, or listeners uh, learn about the remaining two uh, by getting a copy yeah. of your book. So when I was, yeah. when I was listening to you, you know, this sort of stretching out, I'm picturing a rubber band that, you know, can like mm. stretch, 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 and then it might snap and you've got the, the rip or it might snap back on itself. Um, this is what was happening in my brain. I was, I was trying to picture all of these things because I love the the language that mm. that astrophysicists have about these different phenomena. It's really descriptive and and mm. helps you imagine sort of the unimaginable. Yeah. You you talked about space. Uh, you know, you're talking about space in this in this little last bit, and and that I was curious. What do you think about all these tourists uh, tourists going into space? Like, what's your what's your opinion on that? <laughs> um, 
Uh, you know, I don't know. I think that um, I think it's it's an interesting it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, I I have uh, friends involved in various aspects of of sort of space science and and so on who have very different opinions on on this whole thing. And you know, I uh, I think that that's it's really great. I think that what NASA does, what uh, the other sort of national space organizations do is, is really great. There's a lot of scientific research happening. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that could, could lead to really exciting developments. Um, I think it's, I think it's a good idea for humans to, to kind of reach out into the cosmos and, and go and uh, go out and do interesting things. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about uh, these kind of short hops up to, you know, just past the the official border of space and back down. Um, it's, you know, it's it's a it's it's sort of this extreme sport for rich people, and if they want to do that, then that's that's fine. I don't know. I don't know if I'm. I don't know if I really believe it's the sort of thing that's going to lead to some kind of democratization of of space uh, based on the way I see it being currently rolled 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 out where it's almost entirely uh, something that, that, that rich people do for fun rather than something that's you know, sort of built for everybody. But, uh, you know, I have, I have friends who strongly say, you know, that this is the beginning of a, a new way of, of interacting with space and it's going to really open access to, to everybody. Maybe that's how it'll go. Maybe it'll uh, develop into something else in the future. I, I really don't know. Um, that was so very hard diplomatic. To say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, it reflects, I think, that people are constantly fascinated with space. I mean, I've watched the movie Contact. I watch, you know, uh, yeah. fantastical, you know, series like Lost in Space. And, and there's always some element of you. You ended up somewhere you weren't supposed to be where you get when mm-hmm. you're in space. And, you know, yeah. I um, but I also know that that not, not just, you know, I don't know how much these, these short bursts, uh, contribute, but there's so a lot of junk in space. And, yeah. and in fact, just, just the other day, um, the, or recently the international space station had to like swerve to miss yeah. junk. Right. <laughs> and yeah. so how much is that a problem for the kind of work that, people like you are doing in terms of visibility. I mean, maybe not in far away galaxies, right. Mm. But, but just, well, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, so, so the, 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 the thing you're talking about where the international space station had to move, that was what happened there is that um, a, a, the Russian organization shot down one of their own satellites as a kind of missile missile test, basically. Um, And when that happened, it created a bunch of debris in orbit. And that debris is going to be in orbit for many, many years. And so it's just going to be a problem for many, many years and something that other satellites and, and uh, you know, sometimes crewed spacecrafts like the like the International Space Station are going to have to, you know, avoid. Um, so there's certainly a big problem with a kind of lack of of regulation of what people can do in space. There are some treaties that say that you really shouldn't do stuff like that. You shouldn't create debris in, in low earth orbit. And um, so a lot of people were very, very upset with, with what the, um, the, that Russian organization did. And it was, um, you know, just seen as extremely irresponsible and, and dangerous. 
Um, so if those kinds of things keep happening, if people are are you know shooting down satellites, that's going to be a really big problem for just for other satellites, for people in space. And, and if it gets bad enough, it could end up making space basically inaccessible to travelers and, and even to, um, to satellites at certain orbits. Um, but there's, there's another issue that's not really a space junk issue, but is a, uh, sort of orbital crowding issue, I guess that, that does affect astronomy quite a lot, which is there's, uh, there's this push to, um, to put a lot of satellites in orbit that can do like um, relaying internet down to earth. So there's SpaceX has a fleet of them called uh, Starlink that do, you know, space-based internet basically. And there's these huge, these long trains of satellites that sometimes people can see when they're, when they're, uh, you know, shortly after they've been launched. And, and those uh, there, there's uh, plans for thousands and thousands of those things to go up. The, the problem with that, there, there are two things that people generally object to with those kinds of, they call mega constellations. Um, one is that they're, they're, they're visible to, to the naked eye in certain circumstances so at certain times of night or at certain latitudes um, in a way that could be just disturbing. Like if you, if you go out and you want to, you know, the stars and, and wonder at the universe and you see all these little, these little lights going by, um, that's, you know, that's kind of light pollution for, for stargazers. And, and it's something that there's, you can't, there's no way you can get far enough away from civilization to not see them. Right. And that's, that's, that's something where people are, a lot of people are really debating, like, is it okay to do that? Is it okay to change the night sky for everybody? Um, that's one issue. Another issue is how it affects observations of the universe. So if you're trying to do a survey of distant galaxies, you know, you have to sort of stare at one part of the sky for a while to pick up enough light to see those distant galaxies. And while you're staring at that part of the sky, a bunch of these satellites might go through your field of view and just create these lines across your image, basically. And then it's not straightforward to, to remove those lines and to actually see what was behind them, um, at, you know, after afterward when you're probably processing this, this image. And so it can have a really large effect on how we observe the distant universe in a way that's, you know, it's, it's troubling, I think. Um, and there's again, an issue of lack of regulation. There's no one in charge, uh, who can say like they, you know, that's not okay. You know, private company can't do that. I mean, there are regulations. They're just not, um, I think they're they're not built for for the situation that that we currently have. And so uh, there's there have been discussions back and forth between, for example, the American Astronomical Society and SpaceX trying to like figure out a solution to this because SpaceX really wants to launch those satellites for their satellite internet. And uh, you know, the astronomers want to be able to do our observations. And uh, it's it's kind of unclear what the resolution is of that's gonna be. SpaceX tried a little bit of uh, trying to make their satellites a little dimmer. It's not clear how effective that is really. Um, and uh, the astronomers, all we can do is, is try and try and do more work on post-processing to get these streaks out of our, out of our images, but there's always some data lost when you do that. And, you know, it's also time and money intensive to, to do that post-processing, that extra processing on all these images. So it's, it's kind of a, a loss for astronomy and it's not clear what the future of that's going to be. Yeah, I mean, that's really unfortunate. And 
I was thinking, oh, it's just like space is this next wild, wild west manifest destiny expand into, you know, our footprint into space, not just with debris, which I assume when when that uh, satellite was hit with a missile and created debris, you said it stays in orbit for many, many years. I imagine that yeah. must imply it then falls down eventually um, or does so, it stay in orbit forever? Well, the problem is... So if it if it fell down, that would be better because it would burn up in the atmosphere and it wouldn't be a problem. You would you would see it maybe as a as a as a sort of meteor kind of uh, in night sky sometimes. Um, the problem is that a lot of those pieces are unstable. Are they're they're in totally stable orbits and they're going to just keep going uh, for years and years before they before the their orbits will decay. Um, for us for a small little bit of you know debris in space. There's not a lot of air resistance to to drag it down, right? And so it just it just keeps going. And you can have stuff there that's like been there for decades. And you know, NASA and other agencies try and track these little bits of debris. And so when they know one is coming, they they move the International Space Station or they you know try and move satellites or whatever. But there there's a lot that's just not tracked. That's too small to see or or. You know, it's not they didn't have good telemetry on it when it happened and that can cause real damage. I mean, you have stuff going at an incredible speeds and it can punch through the the skin of a spacecraft um, if, it, if it's in, you know, if it hits the wrong way. So it's it's definitely it's definitely a problem when we don't have good um, strategies for getting that stuff down. There have been some interesting discussions for like you know, something that could go up and gather a bunch of this debris, but, you know, space is really big. Like there's just, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of space up there and, and like, whatever, it, whatever you make to try and catch stuff, if it, if it like goes through it, or if it, if it bump bounces off, you create more debris. And so you have to be really careful with what you're trying to do to capture things how you do that. And there's no real business case for it. Um, and there's nobody's the going to pay right? you. Yeah. No, nobody's going to pay you to go up there and, you know, vacuum up all the space debris. So it's, it's a, it's a real problem. Yeah. I think I was, reading and there's like, not a, there's not a clear solution right now. Yeah. And I think I was reading like, um, you know, maybe looking at the gecko's feet, like, cause they're, mm. they're sticky to like stick all the stuff together. Um, so, yeah. you know, we have the debris and then we have now, you know, essentially light pollution in space, uh, which yeah. Yeah. is really unfortunate. And, and I, 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 I don't know what, you know, nobody seems to be paying attention to it maybe. And, um, well, a lot of us are paying attention, but we don't necessarily have the power to, well, to fix it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> the know? people who have the power to fix yeah. it don't necessarily seem to think it's a priority. Um, yeah. Right. And so, you know, before I let you go, because I know you're really busy mm -hmm. solving um, the <laughs> mysteries of the universe. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're not when you're not looking up to solve those mysteries and, and mm -hmm. the solar system and beyond, how do you connect to other elements of the natural world right here on earth? Um, well, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, um, I go running a lot and it's nice to like get out into the sort of woodsy places and, and, uh, see green things. One of the things that that's happened during the pandemic was, I got into, I got into fairly regular running. It's been a little bit spotty lately because I've been traveling a lot and the weather's not been great, but 
you know, I, well, for a while, you know, early on in the pandemic, I was going out for a three mile run every day just to be outside. And the place I was living then had, um, there was a little trail that went by so like a creek and stuff. And I, you know, and I saw the changes of seasons and I saw the, the goslings appear and grow up and, you know, I'd see groundhogs and, um, I saw, uh, snapping turtles come up uh, over a couple of days and lay their eggs and things like that. And so that, that's been very helpful for me while, it, while things have been you know largely shut down and there's been a lot of working from home, it's been nice to, to go out and, and just kind of be in a natural space for a while. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that. Do you, do you make any predictions about whether or not there's life on other planets and in other galaxies? Uh, I think there has to be, I think that it would be, it would be really shocking to me if earth was the only place life happened because everything we know about the scientific process of, of the origin of life is that, you know, there are certain kinds of chemistry that, that occurred that, you know, are, is based on, on materials that are very common in the universe. And uh, that chemistry kind of evolved to being biology over, over you know, maybe millions of billions of years. Um, but the kind of conditions that we think the early earth had that led to the first life, if we think those conditions exist, even in other places in the solar system and, and are, you know, surely they exist in other places in the galaxy. So it, it would be really surprising to me if there was no other life anywhere in, in our galaxy. Um, I think that, I mean, even I would, I would not be at all surprised if there's other life in our solar system, but uh, even if we're the only ones in our solar system, like we can't be alone in the universe. Like I, I, now, whether or not there's intelligent life or whether or not there's life that we'd recognize um, as life easily, or, you know, if it, if it communicates all of that, those are big questions, uh, big open questions. Um, and whether or not we would ever be able to communicate with other life, if it did exist and wanted to talk to us, we also don't know that. But, um, but I think the idea that, that there's no single bacterium anywhere else in the cosmos is, is absurd. <laughs> there's gotta be something out there. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Everyone, please get a copy of the end of everything astrophysically speaking by Dr. Thank Key you. Mack. Thanks for being here. That's all right. Thanks for having me. As you heard, these big questions of where did the universe come from? How have other galaxies evolved? And what is it all made of? And more are at our fingertips now with the launch of the John Webb Infrared Telescope. You can check out the show notes to keep up with Dr. Katie Mack and her amazing Let's Solve the Universe research. And don't forget to tune in next week when we have our second spectacular female scientist, a chemist and author, Sarah Everts, and she wrote The Joy of Sweat. And this is a fun interview. If there's anything you wanted to know about perspiration, sweat, what we do with it, where it comes from, and a lot of history, cool history about how we sniff each other out, don't forget to tune in. Thanks for listening.